Let me just say good morning, church. A couple of things before we start this morning. Congratulations to Wake Forest on their win yesterday. That is incredible. I think the first service uh, actually did better than you, but I'm just saying. Uh, and then, yes, I, I do not need to be reminded that I do know Ohio State lost to Michigan yesterday. I'm, I'm adamantly aware of that. I see you doing that. No, no, no. Uh, but it's been a decade, so, you know, there's grace. We got to give it to them every once in a while. Um, but just so you know, you don't have to tell me because I'm very well aware. Um, we'll still win uh, next year. We're in this series uh, entitled That You May Believe, and here's what we want to do. Um, we're going to unapologetically continue to kind of hammer, hammer down this point that, that you may believe, because that's the whole reason that John writes this entire book. Everything that is in this gospel is written under the premise that you might believe. That's why he says in John 20, 31, that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, when we arrive today in John chapter 3, as we're walking all the way through this book, we're actually in one of the places that has and contains the most familiar, probably the best known verse in all of the Bible. In fact, I would say this, you don't actually have to go to church or have ever opened a Bible, and you're probably familiar with John three sixteen, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in that moment, in that verse, what we see is a place where grace and love begin to take center stage. And the reason is because Jesus' love is actually greater than our sin. And the premise for what I want to go after today is whether or not you're in this room and you're a believer in Christ or whether or not you've been following Jesus for a long time. I want us to be reminded of this truth. And that's the reason that Jesus confronts Nicodemus, actually in us, in really our most desperate condition. It's a condition that, that I think leaves us, not I think, I know because the Bible says so, without hope but for God. And there is this crossroad. It's a crossroad between a desperate people, but a spectacular grace. That crossroad, I think, is, is really kind of seen very eloquently by the Apostle Paul because he writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 4, but God, but for God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And I think one of the reasons that so often, especially as we go through the Christian life, that we don't see grace as spectacular is because we don't often sit under the reality that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we were not alive to the things of God, that we wouldn't desire those things. And it is only the work of God that actually makes us alive. And then, I love how this, the Paul continues here. He says in verse 6, so by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us this future reality that we get to experience so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, if we are in this place this morning and as we look at this very familiar text, there is one thing that I want you to see. That grace is greater and grace is spectacular. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that as we come this morning to this very, very familiar text, that you actually would just make it fresh in our souls. God, that we would come to a place where what we see and maybe have always known stirs in us a greater affection for you. God, I pray that as your people, may we come to this place this morning and may we marvel at your spectacular grace. So Father, do a work in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Question I want to ask you is what do you believe about the grace and love of Jesus? Because as you think and ponder that question, as you come into this room this morning, I think that there are some categories that exist that kind of reveal what it is that we believe about the love and grace of Jesus. I think they're represented in this room in one way or another. And some this morning would just say, you know what, Aaron, I am certain and confident. To that, I say, praise God. I am so glad that you're in this place this morning and you are certain and confident. But here's what I know. Life has a way of delivering some things that we don't always anticipate, nor do we desire. And one of the great truths about the gospel that we can even look at and see in John 3.16 is that as God's people, we just need to be reminded of his love so often. And I think there's another category that also exists for many of us, and it took me a little while to come up with this phrase, but I've called it this. Some of us are churched, but crushed. And what I mean by that is maybe you grew up in church and you have experienced hurt after hurt after hurt in the places that you were raised. And a lot of times what we tend to do is we transfer those hurts and, and really believe that ultimately Jesus is responsible to the place where we begin to doubt that he actually loves us. And then I think there's a category over here that I've called wandering, wondering and waiting. Because we wonder if these things could be true. We peer into them. Maybe we pull back the, the, the curtain, so to speak, and want to look at these things. But we're waiting for Jesus to somehow prove his love. Because there is something in us that wonders, do I need Jesus to do more than the cross and the resurrection to prove his love to me? And so you're just in a category where you're wondering and you're waiting. And then I think there's some that are hopeful but helpless. Because life has actually delivered some things to you that is, is significant. You have suffered immensely. There are some trials in your life that you do not desire or wish to experience. And as you have done that, it has left you in a place where you're hopeful that this is true. You want this to be true. You desire this to be true, but you're not sure that the love of Jesus actually makes any difference in the things that you're experiencing right now today as you sit in this room. And then I think there's some of us that would say, if we're honest, we're skeptical and doubting. Because as you look at this, you may have heard it before, it may be the first time you've ever heard it, but it all seems fanciful. You're just not certain. It seems like a fable. And your doubt actually seems really, it's just too hard, too large of a hurdle to believe Jesus' love. And then we drop in to verse 16. And verse 16 is this beautiful invitation where Jesus invites you to believe that he loves you and that he gave himself for you. And if you're in this room today, whether you're a Christ follower or you have yet to come to faith in Christ, that you're in that skeptical and doubting category, here's what I want us to do. I want us to explore what it actually means that he loves you and that he gave himself for you. 
Because that invitation for us to believe is something that we need to hear regardless of what category it is that you might find yourself in this morning. And the reason I can say that is because all of us before Christ can be just like Nicodemus. We can act just like Nicodemus, as you're going to see here in just a moment. But after Christ, so many of us can act like him. In one ways, we're like him. In other ways, we act like him. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. I want to give you just two ramifications, that Jesus loves you and that he gave himself for you. Because let's be honest, if we explore the depths of that topic, even in the few minutes that we have together, I do believe that by the spirit-empowered movement this morning, we will see spectacular grace. We're going to do that, so if you would, turn your attention to the text We're in 21 verses this morning, obviously, that many verses, I don't have time to say everything that's here, but I pray that God's word would speak as it's read. I'm going to look at the verse nine verses here first. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, I do have to stop there and pause in case you're unfamiliar with who Nicodemus was. If you're unfamiliar with what a Pharisee was, let me explain a couple of things. These guys were the ultimate in religious rule followers, like really, really serious guys. And so not only did they try to follow all of God's laws, but they added a whole bunch to it. So religious were they that they believed in, in the Sabbath rest, that they, would, they wouldn't carry any more food with them on the Sabbath that weighed more than a fig. And they wouldn't they wouldn't carry any more to drink with them than they could drink in one swallow because you know why? They thought, man, if we do that, then we're working and we're breaking God's laws. We're talking about rule followers. Now, Nicodemus, even more than that, was a, was a, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin was a member, uh, they were 70 guys, rather, that, that had jurisdiction. So the Pharisees, and then you had the Sanhedrin, which was this council that had jurisdiction over all of the Jews. And so they could... Uh, they could conduct trials, they, they had uh, really whatever um, worship was happening in the temple, things like that. They controlled all of that. The high priest was one of the Sanhedrin, if you know anything about the Old Testament. Which means that for Nicodemus, he was serious, he followed all the rules, at least that's what he thought he did, and he was well-educated. He knew the Old Testament. He knew what it said. He understood the significance, and yet we see him in this moment coming to Jesus. Let's continue. By the way, I'm not going to comment that much all the way through. Don't worry. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. See, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it come from, where it comes from, or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born 
of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Here's the first ramification that I want you to see this morning just out of those first nine verses, church. Jesus' love actually presents us with our need for grace. Notice what Jesus does here. So Nicodemus wants to talk about what he's been seeing Jesus do. There's signs, the miracles. There was a lot more that John tells us was written in the book of John that is not even recorded. And we know that, that Nicodemus, being this religious scholar, a member of the Sanhedrin, he comes to Jesus by night. And he wants to explore and he asks Jesus, I need to know a little bit more about these signs. Now, I love how Je Jesus just cuts him off. He says, let me, let me just tell you what it is that you need. Kind of like my wife. <laughs> I pre-approved that joke, don't worry. What does he say? You need to be born again if you want to see the kingdom, if you're going to have eternal life. Now listen to me. Jesus was no, or Nicodemus rather was no dummy. He understood completely that Jesus was using an analogy. You've got Jesus, the Son of God, and one of the, probably the most uh, religiously scholared people in, in all of Jerusalem. And they're going toe-to-toe -to -toe here. And, and we know that he understood that Jesus was doing an, using an analogy because the Jews actually had a saying, saying back then that a proselyte, so somebody who converts and then who embraces Judaism, is like a newborn child. So in other words, they, they understood that when you came in and you embraced Judaism, like everything is new. All of your old connections is gone. All of the old life is gone. And I see the connection that's happening there? Except Nicodemus just thought he had it all figured out. Like eternal life was something that he needed to achieve and maintain. Obedience to the law was somehow the pathway to eternal life. And I want, I want you to know this morning, church, that that's actually true. It's full obedience to the law earns eternal life. But you and I both know the impossibility of keeping the law. That's why Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, fulfills all of the law on our behalf because we're unable to. That's when we say he lives the life that you can't live. It's what we mean in that moment. It's a stunning reality for us. And I don't think there's anyone in this room that would say that we actually believe that by keeping the law, that's how God saves us. I think we often will say, oh, it's, it's by grace because of Jesus' love. But I just wondered this question. How often do we live like it's true? How often do we live as though how good we do and how much we perform determines how much Jesus loves us? It's the love of Jesus that we see in this text presented to Nicodemus that is a radical, transforming power of grace that is his greatest need. And if it's his greatest need, it's your greatest need as well. So why is it sometimes as, as people do we struggle to, to see that we need grace? Here's one of the reasons I think is because love displayed by grace just seems too good to be true. So I'm a skeptical person by nature. In August, I got a, uh, I got a letter from the, the dealership here in Winston that I bought my last car from, and they said, we have a deal for you, which always makes me wonder. They said, this is what we want to do. We want to buy your existing car. We want to pay you more than it's worth. 
then we want to give you a new car with more features than you have on your existing car, and you can pay less money than what you're previously paying. To which I'm like, yeah, too good to be true. Like, that doesn't exist except in this crazy economy. Well, it absolutely was true. But here's one of the things that I think is crazy. That's exactly how we view grace. We look at it with a skepticism that says it can't be true. And you know why? Because sin, which is a condition of our heart, that thing that separates us from God, it's also something that just blinds us to certain realities. There are things that we just can't see. And you know how that plays itself out? It plays itself out with this. Because when we believe grace is like too good to be true, we ask questions like, what do I have to do? What rules do I need to follow? Or what must I achieve? How do I need to perform for Jesus? See, we see that with Nicodemus. I mean, he believed it was by his efforts. Listen, you wouldn't carry the equivalent of a fig and one sip of water with you if you didn't believe that following the rules was actually going to make Jesus love you more. And he worked very hard to be accepted by God by what he did. And this idea that he could never not do enough to be accepted by Jesus, that never even crossed his mind. And the reality is for you and I, we can live like that before Jesus, but a lot of us, if we're Christ followers, can live just like that after Jesus as well. It's where our constant striving to try to be good enough, to, to try to put forth enough effort to make us good enough for Jesus you know where that lands itself? In a place where it is a struggle to believe grace is real, but also a place where the struggle without grace is absolutely crushing to our souls. So if, if, you're, in this, if you're in this place this morning and you haven't come to faith in Christ, I think the struggle, could be look like, the struggle could look like this for you. See, believing that we need a Savior is to admit, first of all, that our sin is truly an offense against God. And that we have no ability in ourselves to do anything about it. You can't will yourself into salvation. See, we struggle to believe what Paul writes in Romans, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And not because we deserve it, but because he loves us that much. We struggle to believe that truth. But if you're following Jesus this morning, or if you follow Jesus for any period of time, I think the struggle also can play itself out like this. Man, as long as I don't mess up. As long as I follow all the rules. If I read my Bible enough, if I only use the, Christ, the Christian cuss words, which you do, some of you got like John Christ running through your head right now, don't you? Like if I only use certain words, I'm good. I'm good. Jesus isn't going to be bad at me. Some of us think this way. Man, if I just parent perfectly, if I pass all the performance tests, you know how it plays out? It's that voice in your head that says this, if I do this, then Jesus will, and you fill in the blank. It's crushing. It's a weight where we constantly live on the performance treadmill. You know why? Because we see our mess-ups. We see who we are. We may not like to admit it, but, ex but internally we know all of our failures, Sometimes we get up, I don't know if you've ever done this, but we, we get up and we look, at the we look in the mirror and the person that's staring back at us, we actually despise because we are comparing ourselves to everyone else we see or at least what we see in social media, which is just everyone's highlight reels, by the way. 
Because they struggle just as much as you do, but no one puts really on their social media account like how bad life is going right now. No one does that, or very few do that. And so it's crushing because we, we look at it and we see who we really are, which is just evidence of us, of us as living as broken, sinful people in a world that constantly says this, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough in your job. You're not good enough as a mom. You're not good enough as a dad. You're not good enough as an employee. You're just not good enough. And then love by grace says this, you can never do enough to be accepted by Jesus. That's why he did it all. You're going to see that in this text. So if you've not come to the place where you've placed your faith and your trust in Christ, here's what I want you to know. You can't do enough to earn what he's going to give you freely. But if you're already a follower of Jesus... Can I tell you something? You don't have to be enough. See, Jesus is everything that you can't be. He lived the life that you can't live. And so while on one hand, the struggle over here keeps us from faith in Christ, on the other hand, those of us who follow Jesus are in this place where a lot of times we don't experience the love of Christ. We just live like failures who are never a people who measure up. I think it's like this, because a lot of times we think that, that God is an angry, wrathful individual. So this, this illustration I want to give you about how we often live life actually comes from my friend, uh, Lori Pereira. So this is a, you know, this is a, it's an obedience collar for a dog. You know, you strap the thing in the dog, you push the button, it behaves. I don't know. I don't have one. My dog is eight pounds, so like he just lays around and does nothing. But but for for some animals, uh, you know, they put these collars on, and um, man, when he's not doing what you what it's supposed to do, what do you do? I'm hoping that there's not like a dog randomly walking by outside, and he's getting the shock of his life. A lot of times, this is how we view God. Like, proverbially speaking, we're the ones wearing the shot collar, and, and God just looks at you and says, eh, I see how you messed up. Let me zap you. Oh, I see that parenting failure. Mary struggle, out of here. Wayward child, no good. And we live as though God is constantly relating to us as though we have a shock collar on in the moment that we don't do it perfectly. We experience his wrath and his anger as though a dog experiences a shock collar. It's just an illustration to show us that's not what grace is. Can I ask you a question that I just want you to ponder? Where right now in your life are you struggling to believe that Jesus' love is the grace that you'll need? See, Nicodemus is going to show us that we're not actually alone. Because he makes a perplexing statement in verse 4. Look what it says. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now listen, he doesn't mean literally. 
It's a statement of exasperation. The reason that we, know, that we know he doesn't mean it literally is because he was a very schooled Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. He understood exactly what Jesus was talking about because that's the statement the Jews used to put out there. But it was a statement when he says it back to Jesus of exasperation. He's saying, Jesus, you might as well tell me that I have to go back and be born again, that I have to go back into my mother's womb. It's impossible. And that's exactly Jesus' point. He's bringing us to a level of of exasperation in which we begin to realize and see and understand the grace of God. It's what I call the great impossibility, but for grace. And you know what that does for us? It upends human effort and it upends our striving. Because grace says, church, you don't need to achieve because Jesus has achieved for you. Unfortunately, a lot of times, like Nicodemus, We can believe intellectually that's true, but functionally we live over here as though it all depends on us. Listen to this statement. I want you to get this. I'm going to say it twice. We often live like this, where obedience isn't motivated by grace, but we leverage it to receive grace. Say it again. Obedience a lot of times is lived out in our life, not motivated by grace, but to leverage receiving grace. And Jesus is going to answer an exasperated Nicodemus here. And so stunning are Jesus' words that the Nicodemus just looks at him and then Jesus and he says this, how can these things be? How can they be? It's a question that grace and love upends. You see, Jesus answers it and for time, I'm not going to read it, but in verse 5, Jesus answers this question. How can these things be? And at first, when we we read these words, water and spirit, in verse 5, we might think, oh man, is Jesus talking about baptism or natural birth or what's going on? Let me me explain what's happening here. Water and spirit really kind of combine into one idea that flows out of the Old Testament that means spiritual renew, regeneration, a new heart. Jesus says to Nicodemus, what you need by the spirit and the water is something I can only do for you. You need a transformed heart. He keeps showing Nicodemus this great impossibility. So let us not get to the place where we believe that in any way it's in our effort. We don't come to the theological understanding of regeneration in our hearts, but by the grace of God alone, period. What does that mean? It means grace is our only hope. It's the only hope we have. When Jesus tells Nicodemus and us, really, what only he can provide, what God does alone, a spirit-produced heart transformation, then what we begin to see is that grace is our only hope. And as it drips from the Old Testament, it foreshadows a future grace. Nicodemus gets undone by this grace. He's perplexed by this grace. He asks questions about this grace. And only the Spirit of God can do this in you. It will upend you. Now, Jesus goes on because he doesn't let up. In verse 6 and 7, he kind of does this explanation. So what he's doing in verse 6 and 7 is explaining what he just said in verses 5 and some of the preceding verses. He says, okay, Nicodemus, if you don't think you understand this, let me help you explain. Let me explain something to you. Just like in the flesh, that only produces other flesh, like it doesn't manufacture itself into anything else, 
It's only the Spirit that could produce a new heart. It's God alone doing that work. And so he's bringing, he's bringing Nicodemus to this constant place where, where Nicodemus has to wrestle with everything that he thought he knew, and now he comes to it, and he said, wait a minute, Jesus, you're, you're, you're telling me that everything that I try to do to perform is worthless, and that only the Spirit of God can do that. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's only that transformation that leads to salvation. It's grace. No amount of your striving, church, is going to do what God alone must do in our hearts. So when our hearts are transformed, man, that plays itself out in every area of our lives because there is not one part of our life that is not transformed. And just like you cannot earn grace and love that, that has saved you in the first place, neither can you live in such a way that will cause Jesus to love you less. Can't, you, you can't. Now, I'm not saying that at times in our sin, God does not discipline us. He for sure does. But the Bible even tells us that's because of his great love for us. But don't misunderstand what Jesus is really trying to push here. You can't live in such a way that will cause Jesus to love you less because there's nothing you did to earn it in the first place. And yet, we live our lives trying to live like this in a million different ways. So when I was growing up, I kind of grew up in a faith tradition, which, um, man, there was, a, there was a lot of rule following. And one of those things was we had to, like, there was, you, you dressed up for church, right? Women only in pantyhose and, and skirts and guys in ties. And Sunday night was a real breather because you got to take the tie off. And, hey, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not actually complaining about that. I just want you to know that, like, sometimes I desire, I just want to put a suit on. But I think it would freak all of you out. So I don't wear a suit. Uh, but... But nonetheless, so it's, it's, it's not that it's wrong in any way to, to dress up. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is that I grew up in a tradition that really equated what it meant that Jesus loved us with the appearance we put on externally. And the way that that played itself out for me is that when I was about 10, 11 years old, I went to my very first church camp experience um, by myself. You know, I didn't know anyone. There was no kids in our church, um, which was exciting. And so I, I went by myself. And because Jesus loves you more when you dress up, you know, we were, of course, going to have chapel. And so my mom, being a dutiful, wonderful mom, mom, I love you in case you're watching, um, but what she did was she packed really some nice, nice clothes for me, and so it comes, it comes to the night for the first chapel. Now, listen, at 10 or 11 years old, in a bunkhouse full of guys, here's the last thing that I was going to do. Well, st I wouldn't do this as a 47-year-old either. I'm not going to drop my shorts in front of everybody. It just ain't going to happen, right? So I make my way into the bathroom, into a private shower stall, close the little curtain so that I can change and put all of my clothes on. Now, unfortunately, that's a really challenging thing. You know, I'm full of anxiety in that moment. I've got to do this all right, and so I'm changing. And I put my socks on that I didn't get my shoes on, and I step in the middle of the soapy water that's already on the shower floor. And so now my, my feet are soaked, and I have to put on my dress shoes, and then I'm, I'm already kind of amped up, and I run down the hill and run into chapel, only to discover that I'm the only kid that is dressed like I thought Jesus required me to dress. And on top of that, I also discovered for the first time that there was more that you could worship to than an organ and a piano because they played a guitar. And I didn't know what to do with all of this newfound imagery. It was kind of confusing. 
It's a funny story to illustrate how easy it is for us to believe that the external things we do or the external appearances that we put on actually are the things that make Jesus love us more. But if grace is our only hope, then here's what I want you to know. Because if you're in this room this morning and you're skeptical and doubting, the invitation for you is to believe Jesus died for you he rose again, and that by believing that through faith, you can have eternal life, which starts in this moment. It's your only hope. Will you believe that? But if there's any other category that represents you in this room, I want us to just be reminded us that, reminded us, remind us that when our efforts aren't the thing that save us, neither are our efforts that keep us. And you know how that impacts your soul right today? Because some of you have come into this room and you feel alone. Some of you have felt abandoned by God or other people. Some of you have had moments where you think I'm forgotten. There are moments, I, I'm going to guess, where sin and suffering want to shout to our hearts that we don't belong to Jesus, that Jesus' love is somehow conditional. You know what I want us to do? Just look up and marvel at the grace that is ours. That constant striving to perform is met with a grace and love that says you don't need to earn Jesus' love because you didn't do anything to earn it in the first place. So as I look around this room this morning, I don't know where you might find yourself. But I, I know this that Jesus loves you enough that he died for you. And it means you can stop working so hard to earn his love. Richard, Randall, Jim, Ron, Terry, those things are true. Jesus loves you enough that you don't have to try to earn or work. Jill, no more earning. Jesus saved you. Shelby, it's over. Jesus loves you. And what a glorious truth that is. How? Now I'm going to give you this lamp's ramification. Let me read just quickly these last few verses. In verse 10, Jesus is going to answer this question that Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? And he says, so you're a teacher of Israel and you did not understand these things? Like truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our Testimony. He's talking about the disciples and Jesus and John the Baptist. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, no one, he says, ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Grace drips. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light 
and does not come to the light. At least his work should be exposed. But whoever does what's true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Church, this is the second ramification that I want you to see, and we're going to go quicker. Jesus' love provides us with what we need by grace, and it's always been grace. Look what happens. Jesus answers Nicodemus' question, how can these things be by showing him it's always been grace? When, G- when Jesus confronts Nicodemus here, he says this, so you're a teacher of Israel, you don't get this? So then what he does is he takes Nicodemus to what he had need to hear, that it's always been about grace. That this is an Old Testament reality. And so he reminds him, Nicodemus, in that moment of that time when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And that, that moment that, that as the Israelites gazed upon the staff with the serpent on it, bronze statue, that they by faith were saved. If you don't know that story, it's the Old Testament story where the Israelites sinned against God. And because God is holy and in his righteousness inflicts them with these little fiery serpents that bring agony and death. And they cry out and they say to God, we see our sin. And would you save us? And as a foreshadowing of what was to come, all of a sudden, God says to Moses, make this, make this staff, put, a, put a, a bronze serpent on it, lift it up, and as the people look upon it by faith, they shall be saved. And in that beautiful Old Testament foreshadowing that Nicodemus would have clearly, clearly known and understood, we see that that's exactly what it is that was needed by us in Christ. That there was going to come a day where Jesus would say, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so I must be lifted up, that I must be crucified. But as we look and we gaze by faith, we too can have eternal life. And it's then, at this point, that Jesus says those beautiful words that we all know by heart, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in that one statement, the fullness of God provides and reveals to Nicodemus and to all of us what it is we need, uh, what we need. It is grace alone to believe. It looks like this. If we want to talk about really understanding what it means to be born again by grace, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can't do anything. Now, Here's what I want you to know. If you haven't come to faith, the invitation is to believe that. If you come to faith, let's remind ourselves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, shows us a spectacular grace to the glory of God alone. So what does grace give? Well, the text talks about it because after we get through John six, or yeah, John 3.16 there, what do we see? that we're under condemnation, and yet Christ provides freedom. See, Jesus makes this declaration, which I don't think that we enjoy very much, but it's just a reality for all humanity. Those who do not believe in the Son are what? Condemned already. But those who place their faith and their trust in Christ are not condemned. So without belief in Jesus, we're already condemned. And you know what that means? That the sin that separates us from God deserves punishment. You know why hell is real and why we struggle to talk about it? It's because sin is egregious and we actually don't like to believe that sin is egregious against a holy God as it actually is. 
It doesn't have to be true for you. But so often as Christ followers, we are not living and walking in freedom. We're living and walking under this this weight of condemnation, this unfortunate reality that kind of holds us back. And we feel this constant weight of condemnation. So over here, Jesus says, you are free. Like you're released. The bondage is done. The chains are gone. You don't have to walk and live like this any longer. And yet here we go, constantly living under condemnation that has already been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ when he says you are free. That should get you a little bit excited in this moment. Because that means this, every relational struggle that you're experiencing that just heaps on condemnation to you, you can walk in freedom. When you wade into sin and it amplifies your condemnation, you don't need to do that. You've been freed. When the suffering that you're experiencing feels like condemnation, you can know that you are not condemned, but you can walk in freedom in spite of the suffering that you're experiencing because Jesus has already paid for that condemnation on the cross. See, life itself sometimes simply feels like one big moment of condemnation. But the invitation for us to believe is an invitation, as the text talks about, for us to live in response to the light, the light which is Jesus. So if Jesus has come and he has pierced the darkness and we are not under condemnation, now we can live differently in freedom, in light that is Christ no longer hiding, no longer shameful, no longer under all of those things that keep us back and hold us and don't want to allow us to walk in the freedom that John 3.16 so brilliantly and beautifully says is our truth, that he gave himself for you because he loves you. But do you believe that? Eventually, Nicodemus did. We see it in John chapter 7, and what's really awesome is in John 19. It is Nicodemus and another guy by the name of Joseph who are the ones who end up burying Jesus. That shouldn't be lost on us. The greatest teacher outside of Jesus at that time in Israel, the Pharisee, the premier member of the Sanhedrin, goes to the rest of the Sanhedrin and says, We want Jesus' body, and he buries him. You know why? Because grace transformed him. Because he was changed. And grace will transform you too. So you know what that proves? That grace is greater than all of our sin. And if you're in this place this morning, grace is greater than all of your suffering. And grace is greater than all of your struggles. And grace is greater than all of the inadequacies that you feel. And all of the moments of the hurt. And all of the heartache. All of those things which you have experienced in life. Grace is greater. And we can only see that when we look back at this beautiful thing and see what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. It is a spectacular grace. Our deepest needs are met by grace. You know why? Because grace is the personification of Jesus himself. He trips with it. And it's the very reason why Hebrews says this, and we're done. Let us also lay aside every weight 
You know what that word means in the original language? Every burden, everything that holds you back, every condemnation you feel, everything that you're suffering through, all of the experiences in your life which tend to want to hold you back. So all of the weight you're carrying and the sin which still exists in you that Jesus has freed you from, that you still cling so closely to so that you can do what? Run with endurance the race set before us. Now how does that happen, church? I want you to see this in the book of Hebrews. How does it happen? By looking to Jesus who what? Is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that means? When we go back to where we started, in this beautiful limitation, in such a familiar verse, Jesus invites you to believe that he loves you and he gave himself for you because there is no greater love And there is no more spectacular grace. And God's people said, amen. Father, remind us of this truth. As we sing this final song in worship to you, Father, my prayer is this, that we would actually remember that you are uh, the way maker. You are the miracle worker. You are the one who has done for us what only you can do. And God, re- renew our hearts this morning. Allow us to be afreshed and washed in your grace that the gospel has provided to your glory alone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.